Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I am so excited right now. Can you hear the excitement in my voice? It's because I have a new tour coming up. We just confirmed all of the city. It's it's a trial run of a new tour that we're hoping to do in 2020, a full big thing. And it may not even be on on the website, shanemoss.com, at the time that you're hearing this. But I have the cities. I have the dates confirmed um and we're doing a trial run going through in december doing omaha and wichita and oklahoma city and dallas and austin five city test run of my new show drum roll please calling it head talks for now the subtitle might be subject to change but it's basically a psychedelic version of stand-up science i've been trying to have some uh some researchers in those fields on stand-up science and sometimes because it's just like a science crowd that hasn't heard this stuff they're like oh drugs what the heck and so i've i've decided to make kind of a separate version because i love stand-up science and i loved my psychedelic tour why not combine both so i'm going to have uh sophia rocklin joining me on the five city run author of when plants dream she was on the podcast a few weeks ago one of the single best communicators i have ever seen she's fantastic she's going to be talking about her book doing a book release tour with me these five cities will be part of her book release tour and picking up some other people along the way as well um, some other researchers maybe some artists too to get into the mix she's going to be on all all five of the test run shows and this is something that i'm that i'm hoping to do to collaborate with with different artists and researchers and things and and take them around for a few cities and really hone uh, act hone a show i am absolutely thrilled the venues that we've picked are fantastic and perfect for this so stay tuned for that but if you heard those cities if you're in any of those cities make sure and check that out so excited speaking of that subject myco meditations in jamaica in january guys if you think you're going to join me this might be the last one i'm I'm doing for a while stand-up science has been gearing up so much and then with this head talks tour that i'm planning for next year i do not think that there is going to be um another jamaica trip happening in in the near future certainly not another one next year and um and maybe not in uh 2021 either so if if you're thinking about going and uh, to a psilocybin retreat with me your friend shane moss guiding you through giving you some personal insights that that's uh go to the website shanemoss.com to find out more it's an all-inclusive affair it's fantastic the best part of jamaica you could possibly be in and it is um the best trip you'll ever take it's a trip trip and uh with that i can't wait to keep spreading more news about this tour as it develops planning a lot of things out enjoy today's episode are we yes where are we here 
Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. There are plenty of laughs throughout. So That's you a laugh, weird question. I'm sorry. La- no, it wasn't weird at all. I'm just hitting, I just hit record. I can delete this if you want to, but. This conversation was starting to get too fun to not be captured for the public. Uh, My guest today was just asking me if she's allowed to laugh and how much and was in her head that you must not have ever listened to this podcast. I listened to snippets. I'll be honest. I hadn't listened to a a whole episode, but I listened to snippets here and there. Long, drawn out, dry. (laughs) There are no expectations of laughs here. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but um, it's a science podcast, first and foremost. That would be funny if I started, if I was like, if I gave a guest like a, you know, guidelines of how much they should and should not (laughs) be laughing. (laughs) All right, everybody, welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My guest today is Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, Right in my, I'm back in my hometown here at the school that denied my application. Oh, no, you didn't tell me that. Uh, uh, well, yeah, that's what I'm here for, vengeance. <laughs> um, <laughs> fortunately, fortunately for my life, they uh, they denied my application. I was a terrible student. We're going to be talking about uh, learning a little bit today. Mm-hmm. We're going to be talking about maybe maybe a little bit about how people form false beliefs, buy into myths, that sort of thing. Those, sure. are, those are two of your big kind of wheelhouses that you're into, it seems. I was thinking about how do I, how do I tie those two things together? And this is, I, I, I get a little self-conscious getting a little too self-indulgent and regurgitating the heroic story of Shane Moss for the, the listeners <laughs> over and over again, uh, because I think I think we all tend to uh, uh, make our lives like more dramatic than they actually were. I, I think that that's the way memory works. You look back on things in those little salient moments pop up a little Mm -hmm. a little more easily um and so everyone has like this very heroic story of their somewhat uneventful (laughs) lives often my my, but i had a i had what i'd call a somewhat uneventful um midwestern upbringing that when i look back i was full of trauma but i was a terrible student this is what i wanted to talk to you about i just a brief little background so you know me and where I'm coming from. I was very early on in my life. I was raised Catholic. I didn't I had like some odd suspicions about <laughs> about the the, the narrative the that I was mm-hmm. that I was given very, very early on, maybe as early as like six years old. I just was getting a feeling like I wasn't supposed to be asking questions about Mm -hmm. this and I wasn't getting any satisfying answers. By the time I was 10, I was like, this is made up. I'm not buying into this. And that was, it was a really, I I kind of really lost any kind of faith or trust in in authority figures and really checked out. It was like almost the exact same time that I decided someone had suggested I be a stand-up comedian. It was when like little kids At age 10? Yeah, you know, you know that when they, you're like uh, having like career days and people are coming in and 
tell talk about what they do and then the little boys are like well am i going to be a firefighter or an astronaut i mean those are your two options uh, or a surgeon surgeon mm-hmm. was in the uh, and my um, three-year-old recently uh, said he wanted to be a pumpkin when he goes oh, so. <laughs> sure with them that is, what an ambition <laughs> Oh, I love that creativity. It was a pumpkin or a veterinarian, so, you know. Yeah, well. Uh, maybe, Either way, maybe I told him I would support him. So, horticulturist or or <laughs> veterinarian, those yes. are two uh, science fields. I do think are, he literally meant pumpkin, though. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, who knows? In this digital age of virtual reality <laughs> and everything else, I mean, you could potentially put yourself in the experience of a pumpkin. It's a brave new world we're stepping into. <laughs> so I had, uh, uh, you know, basically I got my head set on I'm going to be this comedian, and I didn't like school at the time anyway. It kind of felt like a a weird child prison to me. And I kind of checked out, and I just spent all day, every day, wishing I wasn't in school and dreaming about becoming a stand-up comedian mm-hmm. one day and kind of visualizing that and and um, watching as much as I could and educating myself on how, how to do that. And I wished going back, because I was always a, a, a imaginative, I remember like playing pretend or like you know playing the i want to be a pumpkin game mm-hmm. um longer than other kids it's <laughs> like wanting to play make-believe and whatnot and like no one would play with me anymore because those days were done years beyond the time anyone else but yeah. i just always retreated into on my imagination and i wish looking back and i don't even know how i would say this or convey this or even necessarily i don't even know what i mean by this totally but i i wish that it would have been impressed on me that that learning and education and understanding especially things like psychology are things that can kind of create the landscape of your inner worlds mm-hmm. and expand your consciousness and give you a lot more kind of room to roam on a contemplative intellectual level and and embolden your own imagination yeah. and and nothing um i to me school always seemed like you memorize some date for some event and i didn't get the significance or relevance of of any of it hated yeah. school and then later got interested in like when when i became a comedian comedians need to kind of make observations and explore life more that's when i started doing my own research to explore life and that's mm-hmm. how i kind of got interested in science on my own and i feel real bad for lots of kids that are in the same predicament that i was in that don't have an outlet of one day becoming a stand-up comedian yeah i mean your story is is unfortunately kind of familiar a lot of kids feel that disconnect um between their own interests and their own passions and their own curiosity and what they're being taught in school and everything that you just said you know starting with how you were taught you know being raised in a catholic home or during in the catholic church and being taught not to question and this is what you need to know i mean that fits into what you were describing what your experiences were like at school right Mm -hmm. teachers just telling you this is what we're going to learn this is how you need to know how you need to do it and then you do it and play this game and you know at the end eventually you'll be done um, there's been a lot of research on that and, and how kids, that's one of the main reasons why kids don't like schools because they feel this disconnect or at least they have a hard time 
reconciling what they're interested in and the questions that they have about the world and what excites them with what they're actually doing in the classroom. And I think, um, gosh, so much of what you said resonated with me where I kind of wanted to interject here and there. Please. Um, But I think, you know, unfortunately, we do kind of discourage creativity and imagination from a very early age when we shut down that thinking, when our kids start asking questions that we feel uncomfortable asking or don't want to answer, uh, I'm sorry, that we feel uh, uncomfortable answering or that we don't want to answer for some reason, or maybe they start questioning things that we've always done and we haven't thought about, so we're not sure how to answer that. And instead of being open to that and and welcoming, you know, and fostering that sense of curiosity in our kids, we just shut them down and say, nope, that's how it always has been, or that's because I said so, you know, one of the most common parental explanations we give to kids when they ask us why we have this rule or why we're doing it that way. Um, And yeah, from an early age, we teach kids, you know, don't think for yourself, don't question things, that's bad, just do as you're told, sit there and, and be quiet. And unfortunately, it's not it's not true in all classrooms, of course, and not, you know, widespread, I shouldn't say it's not universal in our educational system. But unfortunately, again, that's a lot of how just our educational system has been for years and that we it's much more passive and much more students just sit there do as you're told do as I say um and that's you know that's really unfortunate I'm not the first one to say that I won't be the last but there's been uh and again a lot of research on how not only do we discourage that but we kind of kill students creativity in school Mm -hmm. so they don't see it as a, a friendly place where they can actually explore questions that they that they genuinely have Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if it inadvertently helped me in the in the long run mm-hmm. of not not ever being able to ask these questions. Then I had this kind of pent up desire that now I, I do have. Uh, I wouldn't say insatiable curiosity, but I'm a pretty curious, yeah. uh, curious person. So who knows? Maybe if I would have just like bought into school and done the traditional route, I would be all out of questions by now. <laughs> Probably not the case. No, possibly. But again, I think you're pointing to a major problem is that we're we're causing students something that we're doing is causing students to see school as like this task of something that they don't want to do and something they have to get through instead of seeing education as just education is life. And this is my opportunity to learn more about myself and more about my world. Um, I think that that's a pretty important issue. Um, Dan Willingham wrote a book called Why Students Don't Like School. And it goes into a lot of those issues. And it's about how we approach the subject and how we approach things like their natural interest and curiosity. And again, to what extent do we actually give them the opportunity to kind of control what it is, how the conversation goes in the classroom or what directions we go into and, and how willing are we to kind of indulge their their own imagination and curiosity versus shutting them down. And as I I feel like I keep saying, unfortunately, we oftentimes err on the side of shutting them down for the sake of proficiency and ease rather than really trying to cultivate um, curiosity and imagination. There's another really great TED Talk by um, Sir Ken Robinson where he illustrates or explains how schools are killing creativity and how problematic it is that we have such a narrow view of what education is supposed to be and and what we're molding our students to become. So yeah, you eventually somehow got around that and and now feel, it sounds like, reinvigorated for, for learning. But unfortunately, I think it's much more likely people just develop a distaste for education and view it as something that's not for them. Um, and they just kind of discount it altogether once they get through whatever they have to get through. 
Yeah, I, I guess my view of what a teacher should ultimately be aiming to do is, like you said, just cultivating curiosity. I think that if you can spark enough interest in someone so that they're going off on their own time, naturally exploring the subject further, that's the gold standard rather than having these kind of task-oriented things. But, uh, you know, I, I imagine some of it is um necessary maybe you can't go like oh all right what are you into pumpkins all right you get to you get to just learn about pumpkins this year if that's the path that you want to that you want to be on and i imagine there you know there's there's reasons why um kids sometimes have to uh learn things that they might not have the natural spark for right there's de- i think there's definitely a balance to be found i mean there's even a place for rote memorization rote memorization often gets a bad rep you know and it's, it's seen as you know, dismal and boring but you know when it comes to things like basic i don't know basic math facts or definitions and things like that there is a point at which it's important to kind of automatize or make sure you understand the basics before you can be creative in some cases or before you can go beyond that um, so yeah, I'm not suggesting that we should give up all control of the classroom and just let students do you know whatever they want all the time. I think there that some amount of guidance is important, and I think maybe as a society, there's you know certain skills or certain pieces of information that maybe collectively we could potentially at least agree on are important for students to possess, just important for being productive citizens or you know productive members of society in some way. Um, but again, historically, I think we overemphasize that stuff and underemphasize the creative processes and the autonomy. And there's, again, a ton of research that says giving students some freedom, not complete freedom, you still want some structure, but giving some freedom can really lead to, to some great outcomes, both um, motivationally and emotionally, but also intellectually. Hmm. One thing that is striking to me that is that I don't remember I think I remember in around sixth or seventh grade there was this little class on how to get better at taking tests Mm -hmm. and it was all these like hacks of like well the answer is if you are going to guess the answer is like most likely C Uh or or if if there's a definitive like never or always or something like that then it's probably false and it was just like these weird little hacks of like oh okay i can i can look at that. it was like almost a way of gaming the system yep. so that so that kids would perform better on these standardized tests or whatever yeah and what and then you know later on in life i've i've been fortunate enough to stumble into things on say, how memory works or how learning in general works. And the idea that kids aren't taught how to learn in the first place is crazy to me. That should be class number one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, this is how we go about learning. This is how, uh, uh, this is, uh, I mean, maybe at a certain age, you need a certain maturity to understand some of the concepts, but it, just understanding like this is this is when memory is going to work the best mm-hmm. when you're studying this is you know maybe studying before bedtime or something like that having this kind of a routine in your life will will help with retention or productivity and 
uh, that those things are missing from the curriculum. That that seems like the single most basic uh, thing that education should be teaching how to educate yourself. Yeah, again, I completely agree. It's something that I think a lot of teachers take for granted. And then the older the students get and the the longer they're in the system, we just assume that that's something that they must have picked up or that they're going to figure it out for themselves. And some students do figure it out for themselves and develop effective strategies. Um, And other students, they never really figure it out. And, And even worse, a lot of students start to think that doing well in school or doing well on these tests and maybe intelligence or ability more generally is something that's innate to them. That's just something either they have or they don't. And it doesn't even occur to them to reflect on their strategies or their efforts. Or they hear, you know, effort matters. Yes, that's right. Effort matters. That's great. But it's what you're doing that's more important than just kind of how much effort you're exerting. And that in and of itself, even before we get into what kind of learning strategies are more likely to be effective than others, just the realization that there are different strategies and that some might be more effective than others and there's things that you can do differently is huge uh, for a lot of students. Um, but you're right. We oftentimes kind of skip those steps or as you're illustrating, we focus on like these superficial shortcuts um, that I'm not going to lie. That can be helpful to teaching students those things like the answers most likely to be C if you're completely confused or, you know, to look for certain keywords. And like those are useful strategies when it comes to taking a test. But it kind of misses the the overarching purpose of why are we testing in the first place? And, and what do we hope students are, are gaining from this? And what do we hope they're learning from this? Um, so I think it's you know, a combination of, of two different things there. One is, as you said, not teaching students different strategies and, and how to use them or how to decide between them when certain strategies might be better than others. But then also, sometimes I think we forget the the reason why we're doing this in the first place. And I know that sounds really kind of idealistic of what's the purpose of education? And we really want students to empower students and to enable them to think about their lives and to apply it to their lives. Um, I, I guess sometimes people see that as overly idealistic and know we just need to get to the basics and fact building and things like that. But I don't think it's that simple. I think we need to somehow balance all all of those different components um, in a way where we don't lose sight of um, kind of the bigger purpose of why we're doing what we're doing. Hmm. I have several different ways in which I, I'm thinking of navigating this conversation. And I, I'm just, because another thing is just in terms of um, I know about myself and I'm more active and doing things like yoga or what have you or going for a run or something like that Mm -hmm. i i end up it increases my um it seems to increase my retention and memory and focus and and everything and that and that seems it seems like there's it seems unnatural for uh to stick a juvenile primate in a desk for such a long period of time without activity Mm -hmm. and it doesn't seem that conducive to learning and I was I met this guy um I I wouldn't say that he's uh necessarily like bright or not bright but he seemed to me to be of average intelligence and who knows if he would have been more or less intelligent had this had he had a more traditional upbringing, but he was telling me that he 
um, I guess he was really good at skiing when he was a, a kid. And so the, he was like being groomed to be an Olympic skier. Mm-hmm. And so he went to ski school uh, for, when he was a kid. And I was like, well, what was ski school like? And it was skiing almost all day, every day. And there was like an hour and a half or two hours of classes each mm-hmm. day. And at the end of the day, we're like the same age. He's He can read and write and do all of the things and mm-hmm. seems like intelligent enough. And uh, not the, I, I don't know that he's crushing it at life or any. I don't know enough about him. But I was like, I could have been in ski school <laughs> now. I could just have just been much. skiing that whole time. <laughs> that is crazy to me. Yeah. And and I don't I don't think I think the truth lies somewhere in, in yeah. the middle of that. But um I I don't know. I do I do think that the the general structure of things uh, as they are right now is just not how we are built to learn or retain or live healthy lives. And you're right that we don't retain a lot of the specifics information, so or a lot of the specifics and the detailed information from the classes that we take. It's actually, as an educator, a little bit depressing to see some of the cognitive research of, okay, if you test them, you know, six months later or just a couple months later after the course, how much do they retain? And those figures drop pretty dramatically and pretty quickly, yeah. um, which is, it's just, that's just a natural consequence of how our brains work. It doesn't mean something's wrong with somebody necessarily. A part of it could be due to kind of ineffective teaching practices where, again, if all we're doing is encouraging students to rote memorize and just pass the test, then yeah, of course they're not going to retain it long-term as opposed to teachers that are, are really encouraging students to make connections connections to their lives so they can see how it's applicable or how they can use this information, that information is likely to stick. But even when we're doing that, again, we tend to lose some of the specific details and we store kind of the the gist or the, the overall meaning of what we learned, um, which I think that finding alone provides evidence to kind of support what maybe what you were getting at, where just drilling them over and over again with information and facts and details and expecting them to memorize it. What's the point if at the end of the day, you know, they're not retaining most of that stuff? Shouldn't we then rethink what we're doing in education and focus more on kind of teaching, maybe teaching students how to learn or how to be critical thinkers in the world as opposed to memorize the specific content from this specific subject or in my specific class? Yeah, I I think that I'm really biased because I like like a nice meaty concept that I can kind of play around with uh, that that like really kind of changes the lens through which I see the world mm-hmm. and um, you know I, I look at people's behavior or nature or something like that differently because of something some like core concept that yeah. I learned about about evolution or something mm-hmm. um, that's something that I don't know if it's I feel it's more important just because it's how I naturally think and where I excel a little more but mm-hmm. but it where I'm where I'm terrible is things like jeopardy or something like yeah. like any any of the trivial detail uh, you do not want me at a trivia night <laughs> um I I'd be okay in like a think tank situation or something like that but I'm terrible in a trivia night and I don't know if that's just different uh, people attached to different stuff because some people I know, uh, love trivia and there's and are really of, good at that. Really I mean, who's the, who's the really guy on Jeopardy people. recently that just broke all those records? Yeah, 
I don't think and he beat Ken Jennings, but I can't remember his I name. I think but. he might have. But yeah, I, um, and and I'm I'm sure like a really bright person. So how I, I mean, how do you know? You you have a little bit of both for people, or is it? Are some individuals going to respond to? I think it's probably, I mean, as you said, not to be, not to sound like I'm standing, you know, in between these two things and trying to, to, to be uh, wavering, but I really do think it's, it's a little bit of both. And I, I don't want to say that one is inherently more valuable necessarily than the other. Um, I think there's again, a time and place for, for both of them. But as I said, I think in our current educational system, we err a little too much on the side of expecting people to memorize a bunch of facts Mm -hmm. that they may or may not be able to take with them or translate in any meaningful way. And I think um, we could do more to support the other side of of learning. So again, I don't want to say that the fact memorization and the Jeopardy people, that there's something wrong with that or that's inferior. Um, I just think we undervalue the teaching the students how to think and we focus too much on the teaching the students what to think Mm -hmm. when we know that the what doesn't, for most people, doesn't last as long as the the how part. So how do you, uh, what what are your, uh, what does your research entail? How do you study something like learning uh, and what different... um, uh, strategy. You, you, you have a, you're kind of against, you're talking about different strategies, but I know you're against the idea of learning styles, right? Can you explain that? Right. So learning styles is unfortunately um, one of the biggest educational myths out there that mm. just won't go away despite the lack of any kind of evidence that it actually exists. Um, it's, it's founded, I think, in, in good intentions, as many misconceptions are, right? Many bad things end up started as good intentions, right? Um, in this idea that people are different and that as teachers, we need to account for individual differences. And, and I'm all for that. Your students are different. They have different ability levels, different backgrounds. And I think the more we can adjust for those things and try to bring that into education, the more meaningful that experience is going to be. Um, but this idea of learning styles, that everybody has one way that they learn material best. So I think I'm a visual learner or an auditory learner. Um, that's been tested in research over and over and over again. And it's just it's, it's just not true. Um, nobody has one way that they learn everything best. It, it really depends on what it is that you're learning. So, for example, um, I don't know, if I want students to memorize what the shape of the state of Wisconsin looks like, then showing all of my students a visual image of what the state of Wisconsin looks like is going to be the best way to teach that for all of them. Mm -hmm. But if I want them to understand, say, what a a Spanish accent sounds like or how to differentiate um, different regions of Spain and and the dialects or the different versions of those accents, then teaching them through auditory means and and letting them hear those different accents is going to be the best way to do it, regardless of whether or not they think they are a visual learner or an auditory learner. I mean, and that's a simple, very rarely, I think, in education are we trying to teach very simple things like that. Um, Usually the concepts that we're teaching are are much more kind of robust and and meaningful to where they're not reduced to one particular sense or modality. Um, that, That also underscores the reason why we don't have one single learning style that we learn everything best in. We're going to retain more information the more uh, whatever content or whatever it is that we're learning, the more that that involves kind of multiple modalities or engages us in in multiple ways. Hmm. 
so yeah, the reason why I'm against learning styles is just there's there's really no evidence to suggest that someone who thinks they're a visual learner learns better when they're instructed through visual means or the same with auditory or the same with kinesthetic. At mm-hmm. the end of the day, as I said, it depends on the content. The other reason, by the way, that I'm that I'm against and you know, I'm using quotations, I guess your listeners can't hear that, but I'm doing quotation <laughs> fingers, um, against learning styles is because I think it's also dangerous because I, I think it fosters kind of this um, inaccurate fixed view of learning where we start to kind of pigeonhole ourselves or each other into thinking, okay, I'm a visual learner, therefore I'm not going to be able to learn unless I have a visual aid. Um, So either I think that as a student or my teacher says, okay, you're a visual learner, I have to give you visuals. And that I think can be really limiting and really restricting and could potentially, you know, maybe prevent us from learning in, in other instances where we're taught in ways that aren't consistent with our preferred our preferred style. We kind of shut down because, again, well, they're not using a visual. There's no PowerPoint. I'm not going to be able to learn this stuff. Um, and then we act in ways that actually confirms that or makes that come true. So, again, if I think I'm a visual learner and my teacher doesn't use any visuals, I shut down. I'm disengaged. I'm disinterested. Maybe I stop paying attention. And then at the end of the day, I don't do well. But how much of that is because I really couldn't learn without a visual aid? And how much of that is because I just convinced myself, nope, not going to happen. Hmm. And then I shut down. Hmm. I, do, do you think, I wonder if that influences just our perception generally. If, if Because I, I think that there must be individual differences in the way in which we um, uh, retrieve some memories and information and in, in the way that we conceptualize um different ideas I, like i've i know i've tried to explain things to people before where people are like oh i'm not you must be a more visual thinker or something like that than i am whereas some people can kind of see lists in their head more mm-hmm. readily or dates or you you have these like super memory yeah. people that can recall or they have like some odd abnormality uh yeah like the uh like a photographic memory or something like that right and and there so that i mean that there must be some extreme differences in some cases of individuals that do have this one like very specific yeah people toolkit yeah people do have differences in again their visual spatial skills or their auditory processing skills we do see differences there but it's still not true that they will learn everything best in those means so Mm. give the example that maybe you were you were giving um if i have a a so-called photographic memory or let's say i can visualize a page of a textbook and remember everything that was on there i might might be able to replicate that if i have a really good visual memory maybe i can replicate that entire paragraph because i can close my eyes and i can and see it. Again, I'm not sure how often that would actually happen, but let's say I have a really great visual memory. The fact that I can replicate that paragraph or exactly what the textbook says doesn't necessarily mean that I understand any of that, mm-hmm. right? I could memorize, for example, what a bunch of Chinese characters look like, and I could replicate them and copy them and duplicate them over and over again. But unless I know the meaning behind them, having that visual memory or a really strong visual memory is only going to get me so far. And that kind of points to another difference when we're talking about learning and studying um, learning and memory and things like that. And that's that most of the content that we learn, most of the stuff that we learn is stored in terms of meaning and not tied to one particular sense like that. Hmm. Um, 
And that, that ha- yeah, it does. And it also, you know, makes sense with my, um, and I think a lot of people's inability to, um, you know, so many people are like, well, when am I going to use this? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's just the brain naturally going like, well, what is the value in this information? And I think that is kind of the disconnect between teachers and students sometimes where, and the teacher might, might be, right and already aware of the many uses for this bit of information in life but the ability to kind of build that bridge and explain Mm -hmm. to people not just what they need to know but why it's important to Mm -hmm. um know it and and kind of how how that's going to work in their life much in the way that when i set up these microphones i gave you a little tutorial about how (laughs) microphones work and why doing this in a certain way works in a certain way Mm -hmm. um, rather than just giving you the basic instructions i recognize that having that meaning as a context is is really important but in terms of the different learning styles and the different sensory um, inputs or whatever is there have you ever tested retention in terms of if you teach something in all of the you know visually audio uh, and in a variety of because it seems because the brain works in such an associative way that i would think that you would retain something better if you were smelling it touching it hearing it right in general i think the more senses that are that are involved in any learning experience again is going to make it more meaningful and increase the likelihood that you retain that and that you remember it but what some people i think take away from that point is that okay every lesson we teach we need to make sure we incorporate every single modality every single time and sometimes that just doesn't make sense or it might not actually be helpful so you know if i'm teaching you uh, mathematics you know i can get you involved with concrete things to manipulate and and maybe I'm having you count or do fractions with actual pieces of pie or skittles or or something like that where you can taste it too and that's maybe going to help you remember that experience um but you know what really contributed to your understanding there was it the taste of the pie and the taste of the skittles um and what about the smell if if there wasn't a strong smell there does that mean that you know is there is there something like an olfactory learner that's only going to remember if if they you know, if they, if they can smell in that way. Um, so I think we need to be careful. You know, yes, in general, the more we can engage multiple senses and the more I can engage you in multiple ways or help you make multiple connections to what we're learning, the more you're going to retain that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to incorporate every sense in every given mm-hmm. lesson. Like it might look good on the, per- on the surface. Like that's great. You're learning math through Skittles. Um, but at the end of the day, if it's Skittles versus marbles, does that really matter? Probably not, you know? Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm probably going to pay a little more attention on Pi Day, <laughs> and I'm probably going to like you as a teacher a Right, bit, but that's, bit more that's exactly, you're, you're making my point. It's not the Skittles that did it. It's because you were more interested and you were more passionate that day. And that's, a right. you know, yes, it's related. The motivational factors are absolutely important. But the key difference in your learning there is not because, you know, of a sensory style that you have or a learning style that you have. It's because the teacher found it a way to make it more engaging for Mm -hmm. you. Yeah, I mean, I guess how do teachers create a more, I want to say, immersive experience in the sense of, you know, you learn a new language much easier if you just plop yourself in that country 
almost no instruction, you'll you'll figure it right, out faster than to. if you're just forced to, rather than if you go and sit in a class and are disciplined and and are, are learning how to speak Spanish like in mm-hmm. a in a classroom and and you know not immersed in it. And obviously, it's not practical to like go on field trips constantly and immerse mm-hmm. yourself. But how? Is there a way of making education more immersive in a way? Or is there like, are schools creating more of like a kind of team building um, aspect to things yeah, rather than individual? Again, I think it depends on the school district, but there, you know, there's different movements here and there, but there's definitely a trend in a lot of schools to go towards more towards kind of um, problem-based learning approaches or constructivist approaches, which are giving students kind of authentic problems and authentic tasks to think about as opposed to like worksheets. So uh, for example, there's a school in Cleveland, I can't, Cleveland, Ohio, that's where I'm from. I can't remember the name of it, but it has a a problem-based learning kind of approach. And now I'm going to mess up all, see, again, talking about detail, I don't remember the details, I remember the gist of it, but they had a project where, again, instead of teaching like, here's your math class, and then you go to science class, and then you go to English or reading and then writing, et cetera, they immerse all of those subjects into one activity. And it was a way to, I think it was, they were trying to make their library a little bit more soundproof because it faced a you know a busy road or something like that. And they were trying to figure out what's a realistic way that we can do this um, that's also cost-effective, that we can actually afford. And instead of the administrators just figuring out, they actually gave that task to their students. And so the students did kind of, and it was, so it's realistic. It's something that affects them. It's something that they were kind of on board with and excited about because here Here's my opportunity to actually have an impact on my school. So they took some ownership in it. You know, they could see how it impacted their lives. The students did research on on different possibilities. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, different types of insulation they could get or different ways to reorganize the room or incorporating, um, I think it was like plant life and things like that. And then the students together, so they all, I think they were in groups and they all kind of went in their different directions based on what they were interested in. And then they all came back and presented, you know, here's the plan that we came up with with. Here's what it would consist of. Here's how much it would cost, et cetera. Each group did that. And then they engaged, at least I'm assuming they engaged in some kind of debate and discussion about that. And then they were able to to go with that. The school actually chose one of those proposals. And that's how they kind of reframed or um, reconstructed the school in that way to solve that particular problem. Hmm. So, I mean, that's you know one example, but a lot of it the theme is, again, to make learning more authentic, to talk about problems that students are actually facing in life. So, you know, when I was growing up, when I was learning about math, it was, you know, John has 27 cantaloupes. And if Sally knocks 17 out of his hand, how many cantaloupes does he have left? And okay, at least it's a story instead of just what's 27 minus 17. At least it's embedded in a story. But what kind of meaning does someone carrying 27 cantaloupes and losing, I forget what I said now, 10 or 17 of them? Oh, these are like, pretty, you know, hard questions right? that we're all going to need to face yeah, at some exactly. point. Exactly. And I don't want to say it's irrelevant to everybody. Maybe, you know, a cantaloupe farmer, like sure. that student, that one student was yeah. like, yes, finally something I can, I can relate to. 
Um, but, you know, for the most part, we we often – so, again, it's better than nothing, I would say. But it ends up being like these superficial attempts right. to embed it in, into something realistic when there's enough real-life problems out in our world that we could actually get students engaged in that we don't have to make them up, right? So, you know, climate change or, or other issues that we're facing in the community. It could be like a really busy intersection that has had lots of crashes or something. Actually engaging students in those kind of conversations and – you know, at the end of the day, maybe they're not going to solve it. So a bunch of fifth graders, they might not be able to, to solve climate change, you know, but at least they're engaged in that discussion and they, they feel valued. They can see why it's important and how it affects them. And we give them the opportunity to, to think through that. And I think the more we do that, the better people get it at thinking critically and, again, thinking about their world and, yeah. and why what they're learning in school matters. So we're giving them – as I said, even if they're not solving the problems per se, we're giving them the practice to think that way. And they're going to get better at thinking and better at solving problems the more we give them the practice to do that. And it's also, you know, again, going to be more engaging because this is stuff that they're actually going to have to encounter or conversations that they're actually going to have with people. Um, and now they can, you know, better equip themselves to make informed decisions and, and good arguments and responding to other people's suggestions and arguments, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I'd honestly rather have uh, fifth graders um, <laughs> kind of in, in charge of some of the climate change issues as opposed to some of the adults they currently. They might be a little more open-minded <laughs> yeah. to it, yeah. What about, because I'm, I'm thinking about my listeners are – I guess I don't know each individual that's listening to this show, but but it's a lot of like lifelong learners, people that are naturally curious right. people, probably want to learn more. Um, and what is a good way? I mean, I have I've created partnerships recently with um, there's a Libro.fm uh, audiobook company, and the, I, I'm uh, partnered with. The Great Courses Plus, which has these online lectures and mm -hmm. uh, series and stuff like that. But what that's something that anyone has access to. But what's something like some sort of practice or some if someone's interested in educating themselves more, should I give my listeners like a task like, hey, listen, we're going to start a here we are university. You guys figure out how to make that happen. Uh, <laughs> you figure out how to build the building and get the materials together. And now they're communicating with one another. Um, that part's a joke, but <laughs> I'm not. Oh, I was supposed to, to laugh there. Sorry. You were supposed <laughs> to laugh at that part. Um, <laughs> it was uh, just a terrible idea. No. Um, but no, I actually like the idea of kind of crowdsourcing to your to your listeners for for ideas. But yeah, it's actually not a bad idea. Not not the building of a university type mm -hmm. thing, but uh, but just um, in theory, yeah, asking not, listeners for. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not going down the the route of our our great president and uh, building a university of my own because <laughs> I've seen how that can backfire. But what can people do to just <laughs> Um, you know, if they're interested in, I guess here's what I'm getting at. This podcast is oftentimes a big mixed bag of stuff mm -hmm. and there's a different subject each week. Cool. I get to hear some fun facts about bugs or whatever, mm -hmm. but one of the great things about schools and why I started partnering with the great courses is having like a structured thing does help have, like I said, having like a base level understanding of biology or something like mm -hmm. that really helps create that 
that new lens and a new way of processing information and how can people go out and do that for themselves as adults as adults you mean so how yeah. can i develop that kind of basic understanding that i'm assuming they didn't get in school yeah is that why well, i don't know if i have an easy easy answer for that i mean surely in today's you know digital age the information is out there although I think we need to be that much more careful about what information we're accessing and where we're getting that information from, of course. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's sort of my question because, you know, Wikipedia is pretty great, but that has limitations mm-hmm. as well. And and then, you know, if you just, you can go and Google mm-hmm. any question in the world, mm-hmm. but the results are often, you know, sorted based on, you know, what, your what past browsing your history. Past browsing, and, yeah, yeah, what you're going to click on, mm-hmm. confirmation bias, that sort of thing. What is like the most <laughs> kind of objective, best approach to, I want to start educating myself. I want to, in my free time, start learning more about, say, how life works right. or agriculture or whatever field. Yeah. Do you go back to the roots and go down to your local library and look through the Dewey Decimal System <laughs> under <laughs> Does agriculture? Anybody know? Do they even have those anymore? I'm not I'm sure. I'm not even sure if they... I, I don't know. I might have Maybe just on thrown display. off some... <laughs> Do your <laughs> listeners know what libraries? you're talking about? <laughs> Probably not. Um, but you know what I'm trying to get yeah. at? Yeah. Yeah. And again, I don't, I wish I had an easy answer. I'm, I very rarely, to my students' dismay, give very simple, straightforward answers. It's usually a roundabout explanation. Um, I mean, I think we're pointing to some important, you know, issues of, again, being careful about what information we're accessing, especially online and understanding that Google search results aren't necessarily, you know, listed in terms of validity. They're, I, I would say they're very rarely, if at all, ever listed in terms of validity. It's just how, how often are these sites visited and as you said tailored to your to your searching history and what they think you you want to read um so you have to be really really careful there um there was another point oh i what just quickly i wanted to say wikipedia wikipedia gets a really bad reputation again and as a professor i you know i discourage my students from using that as a, a source when they're citing you know resources to support their points and yeah. things like that but it's i pretty awesome though yeah well, and i wanted to note there's actually been studies on wikipedia and as long as it's an article that a lot of people have engaged yeah. with as opposed to like something that was posted and only five people ever looked at right um my wikipedia actually, is horrendous it does not okay. yeah i haven't I, looked I mean, at yours not, but I, I get in my head about things but it's now because I have to look not it that many people have contributed or done anything right or not they're not monitoring it right. for example yeah but for the other pages for topics that are are well debated and people are reading and looking at and moderating um there's been research that says it's actually pretty good quality information mm-hmm. and that they'll do tests where they'll have somebody you know researcher will have somebody put some misinformation in there and in some of the most popular articles I mean, within seconds, somebody has taken it down or corrected it. So for the ones that get a lot of traffic, they're actually relatively well modulated and and some of that information can be pretty accurate. Now, for my students, I might say, you know, feel free to use that as a starting point, but then I want you to go back to the original, you know, the the original references that they are citing. And that more often than not includes, you know, research. So as a scientist, of course, I'm, I'm biased, and I will admit that I'm biased towards the scientific method. And that's in part because I know, um, as a psychologist, the limitations of our, of our own mind. You know, we, we like to think that we're rational, 
everybody thinks they have common sense, which, you know, is interesting because common sense when it comes down to it isn't isn't often as common as we think it's going to be. And then your definition of common sense is oftentimes the opposite of my definition of common sense. And well, obviously, yeah. So, I mean, we need to be, again, really careful about that. And our minds are not infallible. Our minds like to take a lot of shortcuts. You know, you mentioned confirmation bias. We we tend to hone in on information that fits with our beliefs yeah. um, naturally, even when we're not, even when we're trying to be rational and open minded and careful. Right? We just, as human beings, we have this tendency to want to be right and to easily to to be more likely to pay attention again when information fits our beliefs and to kind of dismiss or dis- ignore or discredit information that doesn't. It is. It's. Confirmation bias is one of the, once you start kind of tuning into it a little more, it is spooky how, mm-hmm. how much your, what, what your brain is up to and how I just had, I was, I was listening to, um, a course on existentialism, um, through this great courses. And it was, it was, uh, talking about the idea of sour grapes um of of you know like wanting to get something and then not being able to get it so you you change your perception Mm -hmm. and and uh you know guys do this like hey you want to go out oh you didn't want to well i didn't want you anyway (laughs) this idea but we do this with many of our goals and things like that in life um and it's a it's a way of resolving that dissonance so when you didn't get accepted into uwl you probably said oh it's not a very good school anyways i don't want to go there exactly right yeah and so i was just kind of thinking about sorry to bring that up again Uh, (laughs) no that was fun please do um i'll show you uw i'm gonna educate myself um i uh but i was just kind of i had this topic on my mind um quite a bit and then i was watching an old curb your enthusiasm Mm -hmm. episode a couple days ago and just in the background um behind a receptionist it wasn't like the focal point or anything like that of the camera angle or the scene or anything like that there's just a poster in the background for a movie called sour grapes Mm -hmm. and i was like oh i was just thinking about that and i was like is this uh, a synchronicity am i living in a simulation right now (laughs) but it is amazing that that you know that that would have had i not been taking this course that made me think about that subject i would have it would have just been another poster in a background there's nothing interesting at all Mm -hmm. about it otherwise other than i just happened to be thinking about that very concept and man that is it is a real tricky thing to tease apart what we're what we're already predisposed Mm -hmm. to viewing what we're motivated to perceive in the the world. And that, I mean, it goes back to how we started when I was talking about teachers really trying to understand their students' backgrounds and their interests and how they're receiving information. That is absolutely important for those reasons. Because again, as a learner, we're going to attend to different pieces of information. And you and I might sit through the very same lecture and come away with drastically different, you know, interpretations or experiences, even though we sensationally, right, we experience the same event, but because we've been primed or have had other experiences that cause us to attend to 
you know, the poster in the back of the scene or the way a teacher said this one particular sentence or this one detail in the lecture, um, we might come away with, again, kind of vastly different understandings of what happened there. And so, again, that's another thing as teachers we need to pay attention to. But as learners, I think we also have to be really self-conscious about that and kind of constantly reflecting on, you know, how open-minded am I being here? Am I really trying to to view the other side and trying to understand, you know, something different from what I already believe. And that's even as researchers that study confirmation bias, we are we are still vulnerable to the same same effects. Mm-hmm. So just knowing about it isn't enough necessarily to defeat it because it's just something that's going on constantly. Some sometimes it's intentional, right? So you have you know, certain people that will intentionally put the blinders on and cover their ear. No, I don't want to hear that. I don't want to hear that. But more often than not, again, it, it's subconscious. We don't realize that we're doing. We don't realize that we're resistant to new information or changing our beliefs, et cetera. So I think, you know, in the in the educational classroom or the setting, we have to be – both sides need to be wary of that and kind of conscious and trying to break through how are people interpreting information and how might different experiences change the way they're interpreting this new information. But then getting back to like Google, you know, we have to be, before we do anything, we have to be at least, at the very least, aware of our tendency to do that when we're seeking out new information. Yeah. And I, I mean, by we, of course, we mean other people. You and I, I think. Well, are yeah, we are, we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, Well, and that I, I do want to point out, too, though, that brings an important point, because sometimes people will become like totally cynical about it. Oh, we can never know anything and we can't ever trust anything. Right. And that, I think, is, you know, just as problematic as somebody being totally dogmatic and one sided and know my perspective is you know, the right, the right perspective. I think we need to be, and again, maybe this is my science, but you know, my, my training, my own bias in psychology and and science coming through. But I think, and it, it ties back to this like critical thinking piece of there might not be one definitive answer, but we can surely reason and weigh the evidence as best we can, you know, whatever information we have to make an informed decision, the best decision we can, maybe in this particular moment. It doesn't mean we're never going to change, right? It also doesn't mean we're like flip floppy, okay, I'm just believing this for the sake of believing this right now. But it's just kind of doing the best with the information we have right now. I think that's an important kind of lesson to take away. Bayesian kind of processing in in a way. Sure. Yeah, I my my bias is is I would I like to uh I, I'm a little more susceptible to the learned helplessness. <laughs> I like I like to really I really like to sink into the uh complexity and chaos of all of it and kind of uh, I I tend to perceive much of life as being pushed about by a myriad of influences and priming that I will never have a sense of mm-hmm. or or be able to get down to the bottom of or know what my, what my intentions are and I'm very hypercritical and second guessing everything and mm-hmm. uh, all, all of the time and that can lead to a lot of paralysis and it's absolutely <laughs> its yeah. own right but it can be fun sometimes yeah too. and I, I, again I think that self-reflection it's something I try to model for my students too even though I'm the expert in the classroom I'm constantly kind of thinking out loud, too, and this is why I believe this, and this is where this comes from, and at least I'm trying to be open-minded to, you know, the different perspectives that my students bring into the classroom sometimes. Mm -hmm. It's definitely an imperfect 
process. Uh, I don't think anyone is is necessarily arrived in terms of how they process information and they were to the point where they never have to, you know, be critically reflective. <laughs> but it, it does, I think, again, come to kind of that balance of, okay, well, with certainty, this is what I can say right now, or at least with some certainty, this is, I feel confident about saying this after having reasoned through and, and weighed through the information available. But at the same time, always, to some extent, being willing, again, to to re-examine that in light of, of new evidence or in light of a new perspective. Hmm. Easier said than done. And maybe enough yeah. to drive you a little bit crazy sometimes. But Yeah, I've been driven crazy. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I appreciate about myself is my ability to try to take on different perspectives. Mm-hmm. I don't think I, I wish I did it better. I don't think that I I'm an objective person, and uh, I don't think that I'm without my biases. But mm-hmm. nobody I is, often really. That's another important point: is everybody is biased. Yeah, and people don't like to be told that, and it's got a really negative connotation to it. But that's literally the way our brains work. We we can't help that. It's it's what you do with that information, or what you do, you know, beyond that. To what extent are you trying to take other perspectives? That that's what we can control. Yeah, I mean, I guess if I had a real goal as like an impact that I want to make on people is I've always just kind of liked the idea of shaking up people's mm-hmm. perception more just for the sake of it. Like mm-hmm. I don't care where they land or, or anything else. I just want I just want to just poke people enough to give them just a little bit of uncertainty, uncertainty mm-hmm. into their own beliefs and my own as well. I've always liked doing that. I'm mm-hmm. like pushing people's buttons. A I'd say the bit. same, the same <laughs> of me. You know, it's what I try to do in the classroom too. I, I tell my students, I'm not necessarily here to tell you what to think. My goal is just to get you to think, yeah. right? And I'll, I'll play devil's advocate or I'll present a different view. Again, not because I think you're wrong necessarily. Sometimes I might think they're wrong, but sometimes it's just, again, the practice of considering another perspective and reflecting on what you believe and why. And at the end of the day, you might not change your belief. You might actually come away you know, with stronger convictions than you did before. But the point is that hopefully you are authentically and genuinely going through that process of kind of critical self-reflection and self-examination. And I will say, though, that I, I there are some things, so maybe that's a difference between you and I. There are some things as an educator that I want to make sure that I don't want students to waver on. So you know, when it comes to things like racism, I'm no longer willing to just play devil's advocate and okay, well, maybe I could see right, why you think, right, you know, right. it's no, at the end of the day, this is wrong. And, you know, in that, in that sense, sometimes I'm willing to kind of shut down the conversation in that way. So I do think there are some things that I'm much more adamant about where, nope, this is the answer. This is where I want you to go. But a lot of my job is really just about the process of engaging in that self-reflection and hoping that, I can kind of gently, maybe Socratically guide them to figuring it out for themselves, yeah. even if I think I know the the answer. Well, believe me, as someone who who spent many years trying to gently like go into comedy clubs and sprinkle little bits <laughs> of evolutionary ideas in a way of like being very careful to say like adaption instead of evolution mm-hmm. or like setting things up in just such a way so people don't know that they're hearing about evolution, but they're just like getting in there a little mm-hmm. bit and going around like, uh, you know, the South and areas that are that creationism's more more of a thing and trying to sprinkle it in after a while i'm also like eh, 
at the end of I'm the not day, doing that anymore. I'm like, you know, that uh, life is too short for people that I think are only making it shorter. Yeah, and it so. opens the door to, in some ways, an extreme form, kind of conspiracy theories, and you yeah. know, people that just play devil's advocate or promote different positions just for the hell of it. And that I think can be detrimental. So again, when it comes to things like climate change, yeah. it's really not as subject, you know, as, as up in the air debatable as a lot of times we, we seem to make it out to be. So when news organizations bring in one climate change expert and another one who is against it, it makes it appear to to your average viewer that, Oh, it's, there's two equal sides and I've got to yeah, debate. That really is. That seems to be the main strategy of the side that is against science is just to be like well look this is there's two sides this is just a different point of view there's two sides to everything Mm -hmm. and the truth doesn't always uh, isn't a two-way street right and right uh, and so again i would say maybe good intentions that we want to consider multiple perspectives but again in in that scenario i think it actually does more harm because it, it misrepresents what the science actually says. You know, when 97 out of 100 uh, scientists say no humans are causing climate change, it's really happening, it's a real mm-hmm. thing, and you only have three that say that don't, it, it's really a misrepresentation to bring them both on and give them equal time and equal air on, you know, on TV or, or whatever show we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, shame on the three for existing. Um, but <laughs> there's always room for some, you know, some debate. Like that's yeah, some yeah. of that is healthy debate. But right, uh, and and that relates back to confirmation right. bias. Is if it's something that you know you disagree with or that you don't like, you're more likely all of a sudden to pay attention to that side. Like, oh yeah, you know what. Those three people disagree, therefore there must be something to it. But if in another situation, if I told you, oh, it's 97 to three, you'd be much, if you didn't care about it, or if if, if the 97% was on your side, you'd, yeah. oh yeah, of course that's right, right? It's 97%. Yeah. Um, and that's, again, the tricky things about our, our minds is sometimes we don't catch ourselves doing that. It reminds me of like the... The re- and, and sorry, I'm going off in, in many different directions, but it reminds Please me do. of the research on, you know, vaccines and, and their effectiveness and that whole supposed debate. And right. um, again, just to be clear, that vaccines don't cause autism. There's been a ton of research studies on that. Um, vaccines overwhelmingly are, are more beneficial than they are detrimental. Does that mean there are never negative side effects to vaccines? No, of course, you have some people that, that have negative reactions. But again, the number of people that have negative reactions and negative experiences, I'm not trying to minimize that or to say they don't matter, that they don't count. That that matters and that's important. But at the end of the day, again, very overwhelmingly, the research clearly says vaccines are much more beneficial than they are detrimental. Right. But again, in public discourse, it's it's almost in many cases those two sides are given equal weight. We're not saying that we can totally ignore any negative reactions. That's not what you know somebody who's pro-vaccine is is trying to argue. But we're saying at the end of the day, again, we've got to be, I, I don't know, more reasonable or rational about how we're drawing these conclusions. Yeah, it is really very tricky and difficult because I, I mean, I. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you started, you kind of brought about this point by talking about racism. And I, you know, I try to go like, well, you know, every 
every organism on the planet has this kind of in-group, out-group, sort of like, uh, you know, outside uh, predator, prey, kind of like, and these different biases built into their system. And do you give people the benefit of the, like, obviously, like, no one wants anyone to be a racist, but how much is it is, is this just like people lacking information? Now am I being biased against this person because they haven't been around enough diversity to know better and 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 now am i am i being it is that my in and out group kind of because someone has a different political belief than i do or something like that i'm i'm viewing someone who is who who has like a different view on say affirmative action as a threat to me and this is my mm-hmm. me being hyper alert to that it is it's endless it's endlessly complex and i do think it really is hard to zero in on uh what is the uh, uh, what is the accurate way of perceiving things and i think it's tricky for me as an educator it's been something that i i've been reflecting on more and more um over the years is again what is my my role in that um i you know i i'm I'm the eternal optimist that I think everybody is capable of change and everybody is capable of learning and growing and, you know, coming along. (laughs) Um, And as an educator, I think, again, it's really important to be patient with that process. And you have to be careful sometimes not being overly dogmatic and overly assertive because that's sometimes going to shut down the conversation before it starts. The defenses are going to go up. People aren't going to want to listen. They're going to dismiss everything you say. So I think being patient is important. But again, when it comes to things like racism, there's also a certain point at which I'm not going to beat around the bush anymore. Like I'm not going to appear to be on the fence or that I'm, you know, somewhat indifferent or, you know, unsure about this issue. And I think as a as an educator, it's hard to know where to draw that line because I don't want to ever give up on a student and say, oh, you're just not worth my time. I'm not, you know, I'm not going to try to understand where you are and slowly pull you forward or slowly work with you. Um, but at the same time, you know, at the end of the day, I, I, I don't know. You can only do so much as an yeah. educator, and people are all at different spots. And you know, is my goal to reach the the majority of them? And then, at what point do I do I say, okay, that's sufficient? You know, most of you are here where I want you to be. And then, as you were saying, how does that play into my own my own biases and my own beliefs as an educator? Am I to what extent am I imposing them on my students? And there might be some things that I'm very okay about and conscious about imposing. So anti racism, I I want to. And right. somebody tells me I'm biased against racists, I'm okay with that. Like I, that's my decision. Is right, yeah. Right. I, I am biased against racism. Okay. <laughs> um, but I think there's a lot of other topics that are maybe less obvious where we don't always realize that we might be having this this impact or otherwise communicating a certain message without necessarily being conscious of that as educators, whether that's a good thing or or a bad thing. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I'd never be a good teacher because I'm I'm a I'm a giver upper. Uh, I'll I'll give up on like I, I I will I'll I'll try to I do this like in relationships and business things and and friendship uh, like I'll I'll try really hard and then when it reaches a certain point I'm just like oh I can walk away mm-hmm. no problem and I have a, I don't have like a 
I no don't, I don't look no. back. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't dwell on what could have been or if I, I just really <laughs> move on. And I don't, I think that teachers, uh, you can't really, uh, necessarily do that. Or maybe some did with me when I was, uh, when <laughs> well, I was that's a student. Thing. Yeah, I, I think there's, I think there's some variation in, in, <laughs> instructors strategies and and patience with that and reflectiveness um for me it's kind of a a double whammy though because i'm an educator and i study education so i'm kind of constantly bombarded with this reflective of what am i studying and what is research saying and then what is actually happening in the classroom and am i being consistent with research or to what extent am i doing things that i that i think i should be doing and again knowing as an educator, how at what point should I wipe my hands and say, okay, I've done enough for this student. There's nothing more that I can do on my end. If a student is struggling, is that because of something I'm doing or not doing? Do, do I need to do something better or differently? Or how much of that is due to their own efforts? And again, I don't, there's never a definitive answer to that. And, and that's kind of the struggle that, that I have is always questioning, could I do more? You know, is that student more capable? And and if I just taught it this way or or reframed it in this way, would they get it? Have you done the backwards chair yet? You sit on the chair backwards, the, <laughs> like in the movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I probably have over the, over the years. I tend to be a. That's I move when they around know you mean and, business, yeah. <laughs> but you're also on their level. We've you're got cool. these fixed desks here, where like the you know the, the wooden part, the flap comes down, so it'd be kind of hard to do that in in this setting, but. <laughs> But yeah, maybe I could. I don't know. I just, you know, people are people are different and some people are ready for that. And some people are, I, I yeah. mean, I know that there's only so much I can do as an educator, right? I know that students have to be willing to work towards it and work for it and push themselves. Um, but again, there's no definitive answer to, to know exactly how much of that is me and how much of that is them. And I think the same is for the students. I think the easier thing, well, for teachers or students is to blame the other, right? So teachers have students that are underperforming. That's because they're not motivated. They don't care, right? They're lazy. That's the easier thing to do instead of like, wait a minute, maybe I should be doing something different. And the same is for students when they're not achieving well. Again, the easier thing is, well, the teacher sucks. I hate this class. This is boring. This is useless. I only have to take this because they're trying to get money out of me or, you know, what, or it's my, not my learning style, you know, that kind of thing. Um, the trickier thing, though, is to try to consider both of those things and and to ask ourselves, am I being kind of as honest and reflective as I as I could about that, of how much of this is my responsibility? Um, all right. So it is, it's getting to the time where I'm going to oh, have to no. let you go soon. Okay. This is already longer than we normally have a Uh-oh. podcast, which is <laughs> no, it doesn't matter on my end. I'm, I'm con- being considerate of your time here. I'm having a lovely time. Um, but it is almost three forty, so okay. you have to wrap up. Um, I, I do, you have like a heart out coming out soon. So one, I have my guests each week name a, a charity of their choice and then i did have like one or two related little questions if you have time sure. for them if you can give me like another five minutes oh yeah five cool? minutes is okay yeah. cool right, so charity of your choice it was a kind of a hard choice but i'm choosing feeding america it's an organization that as you can guess is dedicated to providing or at least trying to promote food security in this country mm-hmm. um one of the wealthiest countries arguably in the history of the in the world um, and many people don't know that 40 million people in this country live in food insecure houses. Um, that's about one in, I think it's one in eight or about 12%. 
Um, and that includes, you know, somewhere between seven and 10 million children um, that live in food insecure households. And so it kind of is a basic, most basic fundamental need. Um, food Feeding America uh, helps to support food pantries across the country and, and to provide that access. That's fantastic. And these are these are things that are important in learning more and having proper nutrition. Absolutely. How am I how can I expect my my kids to learn or my students to learn if they're literally starving or, or you know, unsure of where their next meal is going to become or come from? Yeah, I think that is fantastic. Um, so uh, go to the here we are podcast.com website to find the link and learn more there. And my my last question, and sorry for like shamelessly, pl- I'm just so excited. I have these two new partnerships with Libro.fm and uh, the great courses plus because I've been, I listen to audiobooks constantly mm-hmm. and take classes on online. I, I have for like a decade now. Mm-hmm. This is how I know the things that I know. And I finally have these partnerships that are just so compatible with what I love doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, but I wanted to bring it up because of, my favorite subject probably is cognitive biases. We've been talking about confirmation, but it just blows my mind. I, I can't get enough of them. And I know you've <laughs> mentioned more. So I wanted to ask you just a, a little more about um, maybe some of the other um, biases that you see popping up a lot. Because because I do think that, that books in classes are probably the best way to get the some of the most accurate information, but I find all the time I go, I read some science books by some fantastic, uh, uh, you know, scientist who does amazing work and is this great writer. And then I have this fun fact and I'm in a podcast with you or some other guest. And I'm like, Oh yeah. It's like when the ants do this thing. And, the, <laughs> and then the, the person that actually knows about ants is like, <laughs> Actually, Actually. (laughs) that's not at all how it works. And so this is seemingly this unavoidable thing. It doesn't matter where you go, what your source is. That's not to encourage people to give up, but just like little bits of caution in anywhere you're learning, in any source that you're getting your information from. What are some of those other little biases that you think kind of steer people in the wrong direction in terms of education? Well, again, confirmation bias, I think, is first and foremost yeah. probably the most significant one. Maybe, that, again, maybe that's my bias. That in, might be you that. confirming the... Um, another closely related one, I would say, is blind spot bias. And yeah. that's quite simply the idea that nobody thinks they're biased and everybody, we can see it in other people, but we have a hard time recognizing our own bias. So yes, there's actually a name for that bias too. And again, I think that's also huge because because the average person, like I said, it's really easy to recognize when other people seem to be irrational or when other people are, are promoting or showing bias in some way. But as human beings, we don't like to think that we're flawed. And we like to, it, it makes sense. We like to think that if we can trust anything, it's the, you know, the sanctity of our own minds. Like I know myself, I know how I would act, I know what I would do. And that's, again, that is, it's, a small step, but it's so important just recognizing that as human beings, we all have these limitations and it it doesn't inherently mean you're a bad person or a horrible person. It's just the way our minds work. 
so that would be, I guess that would be the, the biggest one that, that immediately comes to mind. Follow up question from a, from a personal level, because I'm sure there's other people out there um, like me, because I don't, and I might completely be fooling myself right now by thinking that I fall on the opposite end of the spectrum in some ways, but me even thinking that I'm maybe fooling myself right now is proving. <laughs> I'm really not trying to confuse you. No, no, you're not confusing me. This is this is my everyday life is <laughs> is amidst complexity and confusion and it's just how I view the world. I don't trust myself or any of mm. my decisions. I don't, and I have, uh, and I second, triple guess everything. Oh, this is sounding too have, familiar. And it's a part of myself that I I like very much, mm-hmm. but I also have horrible issues with depression. Been I've had a wonderful like two or three month streak where I've been uh, doing really well, but uh, mm-hmm. you know, I I once I. Uh, once in a while I fall into it and I lose months at yeah, a time. Yeah. Um, I just go down this rabbit hole. And what is, is there a way of, I mean, how do you navigate the difference between self-awareness, cons- self-constructive criticism, mm-hmm. and just self-doubt and insecurity and, you know, depression, anxiety, these these sorts of things. When do when do people know when what their behavior is gone from beyond a natural curiosity and some beneficial um, self analysis to right. to a maladaptive uh, uh, you well, know mental health issue? Well, I'm not a clinical psychologist, right. so I don't want to go too into too much depth or detail there on on my perspective. And I, again, I wish I had more an, more from a philosophical, right. personal, individual point of view. I wish I had an easy answer. I do think you know humility is an important first step, but also you know forgiveness and and recognizing you know getting back to that blind spot bias. We all have it. I think that's also a good reminder, again, that this is okay. It's, it's okay to doubt yourself. It's okay to be reflective. Everybody does that. Well, some people more, more than others, absolutely. But everybody does that to some extent. I, I think, you know, if it's to the point where it's paralyzing you, where you can't make a decision or where you're getting really down on yourself, you know, that's the point at which maybe that can be problematic. Again, a health, healthy sense of self-doubt is is good, you know, doing this sometimes. If it's to the point where you feel as I said, really bad about yourself and that you can't do anything right or that you don't know anything, that, you know, that's a sign that maybe mm-hmm. you're doing it a, a little too much. And that's where some self-affirmation can come into play where thinking about the good qualities um, that you have or good experiences that you've had can really make a difference. And that's where it also helps to get other people's feedback and other people's opinions. You know, self-reflection, it's not something that we can do totally by ourselves. And when we're doing it all alone, that can be a really kind of, I think, scary and, and dangerous place or own minds, right, that are free to to invent what other explanations and kind of to delve into themselves and re-into themselves and kind of, you know, I'm thinking of like layers and layers and layers of holes that you're going down in your thought process. That I think, again, is dangerous. And we need to remember that we need other people to keep us grounded and to engage in these conversations. And we need to be willing to listen to other people's feedback, whether that's praise um, or criticism. But it's it's sometimes easier to focus on the criticism and not to believe the the praise and the good things that other people are are telling us about ourselves. Mm. So you know, asking, getting feedback from other people, and asking other people what they think, and listening when they say things like, "No, I I appreciate how thoughtful you are and how reflective you are," and 
I think you made the right decision there, or I think you're making some some good arguments. If you're focusing more on the negative stuff, then we need to try harder to focus on the positive stuff too, which again is another bias that we have, speaking of biases, is that we naturally tend to focus more on negative information. Yeah, so negativity John, bias. Yeah, you were mentioning John, uh, uh, relationships earlier before we started, and John Gottman, uh, John, I think it's, I'll just say Gottman, he did some research on, on that bias, and his ratio is something like five to one for every one piece of negative information we get about ourselves or experience that we have in a relationship, it takes five good pieces of information or five positive experiences to kind of counterbalance that. Um, so again, kind of, I don't know how much recognizing that is is helpful because I think it's like, you know, a lot of things, but then internalizing it and really applying it to yourself sometimes is, is, is hard. Mm. But I think that's another thing to try to be forgiving and to recognize about ourselves. And so if, I don't know if there is something we're down about than making efforts that much more, trying that much harder to focus on the positive things and the good things can be a way to, to try to balance that out for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. I, I can be very much a hermit. I'm definitely trying to actively create kind of a community of, of people that are into these, you know, talking about this sort of stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I can only listen to what's going on with whatever local sports team or whatever. Like, I yeah, just can't only so long. handle it. And I'm trying to figure out ways of doing that. I have the show stand up sign. You know, I, I have this podcast. I don't know if there's a way of like making this podcast more interactive or where listeners can or maybe building a form or something like that mm-hmm. where people can interact. Are there comment I'm, sections I'm, on that? There isn't. I should maybe have something like that. I've been <laughs> trying to make what I really want my my stand up science show. I, I'm hoping that it will one day and i don't know how to make this happen but i want it to one day be something where people are like meeting each other afterwards Mm -hmm. and stuff and finding like-minded people in their community the way in which like church you know does does that really well and Mm -hmm. and i think that's why a lot of people gain the most benefit out of that just from a social yeah having um, that connection it's you know, amazing. We're surrounded by people, but having that kind of meaningful connection with people isn't as common as as you think it might be. So I don't know how to do that, but the listeners, I'm tasking you with that. You can be involved <laughs> in trying to figure out. I don't know if there's ways of like doing meet and greets things or hmm. something. I don't know. And I just a, a warning about comment sections that can go either way. Sometimes oh, yeah. I know sometimes oh, yeah. for me that the comments like on local news stories or or on social media are sometimes the most. Yeah depressing and scary thing even when i did my tedx talk on learning styles um some of the comments totally supportive and yeah (laughs) Yeah, finally someone's and then some of them and even though i know it's not my it's not my personal belief just wantonly because i hate learning styles you know i'm not here to like ruin somebody's day just for the heck of it it's I'm only reporting what science tells us about learning styles. But even so, reading some of the negative comments is like, yeah, yeah. oh, somehow that that still hurts, even though logically I know it shouldn't hurt. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah I'd say, I mean, can, there, there, if, if you, you create your own that. forum, you can have moderators and yeah, that's that true. sort of thing and, yeah. and kick trolls out. And the things that hurt the most in YouTube comments and stuff is when people are either right or 
very close to it or mm-hmm. make like a good point. It's not like the jerk that just like wants right, to you can write them be off. a dick or yeah. whatever and yeah. like, yeah, whatever. But sometimes people are like, ooh, that was an actually very good point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, but those are uh, those are a little more constructive and you can maybe benefit from them in the long run. I don't know. This is, I guess, why I was saying like, how do adults, people outside of school, start learning and educating themselves yeah. more? And I don't know how to, I, I, I feel like I'm getting a sense of putting a lot of pieces in place and some of the partnerships I'm building, but I don't know how to like form a community kind of feeling, which is, I guess what I'm trying to say is I want to start a cult and I don't know <laughs> how to get started, but I guess I can just Google it and it will send me results based on, you know, other cults that I've, <laughs> that I've searched for. Yeah. I don't feel like I directly answered looking back any of the questions that you asked me today. And then we'd kind of go off on tangents in other ways. This is Um, how this podcast goes all the time. But we got a couple laughs in there. Yeah. So it could have been zero laughs. We got a few laughs. I wouldn't say it was a laugh riot. (laughs) Um, But we're ending on a couple. That's (laughs) That's not bad. But yeah, I I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your thoughts and ideas. Anytime. I am happy to to continue this conversation online or face-to-face or or whenever you want to continue. Awesome. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much, Tisha. And it's Tisha, right? Yes. Okay. I was like... Exactly how it looks. Okay. Tisha Marshak. (laughs) Kidding. And (laughs) it is T-E-S-I-A. I've never met... Have you met another Tisha? Not spelled that way, no. Wow. I'm, I know they exist. I just haven't, haven't met one. Very unique. There's not a great story. But it's They found it in a baby name book. One mm-hmm. of these days, I'm going to come up with a really interesting, like, oh, yeah, I was named after this, I don't know, Greek warrior <laughs> goddess, something. So, but no, it's. Well, it's a, it, you're a rare individual. <laughs> you should be happy with that. Tisha Marshik, everybody. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. Next week, we have a fun one, everybody. I'm in my hometown, UWL. That's the University of Wisconsin, La Crosse, talking with Anne Galbraith. She is so much fun, so funny. It's always, you know, it's not, it's not the point of the podcast for it to be a, a comedy podcast. I consider this a science podcast. And uh, love when we get, we get some laughs along the way and everything. But uh, sometimes I have guests that are just real fun, like the, especially with subject matter that that you know other people might deliver in a in a dry way. It's it was really really a treat. So um, I hope you get a chance to check that out again. Go to shanemoss.com to search for all my new dates. Adding. Tons of new stand-up science dates already since uh, since the last time I talked with you guys. A bunch more on the site and my new tour, Head Talks. Oh my gosh! And I'm dusting off the Good Trip show. Let me look. Jeez, I almost forgot to share this with you guys. Dusting off the old Good Trip show by popular demand. So doing a few, put together some last-minute shows so by the way if you're here in the stand-up science knoxville nashville charlotte and then a good trip greensboro raleigh washington dc and then i'm heading up i'm going to be doing the boston comedy festival i'm i got a bunch of stuff around new england and maybe new york 
but definitely New, New England lined up already and they aren't on my site as I'm looking at it now but will be soon and then um, kind of heading straight west for the Midwest for Thanksgiving and then after Thanksgiving kicking off the Head Talks trial run which I think is going to be a monster hit. I am exceptionally optimistic about it and I am a cautious cautious optimist but I think it's going to be a big one so real excited and thanks for all the feedback all the time it's always nice getting emails from you guys thanks for contacting doing the contact page at the here we are podcast.com website those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites Network.